Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Rapper Sterling Davis had a successful career in hip-hop when he made a bold decision to put his energy behind another passion, cats. Davis reinvented himself as the trap king, as in trap neuter, and return, helping to humanely curb the overpopulation of stray cats. The lifelong cat lover also wants to change stereotypes about the often white-dominated field of animal welfare and attract more diverse communities. Later in the program, the Trap King joins City Light senior producer Kim Drobes to talk about how he transformed his career from rapping to trapping. First, the independent theater at Pont City Market, Roll Call Theater, supports and elevates up-and-coming filmmakers and playwrights. From sketch comedy to format plays, Roll Call works to help Atlanta writers, directors, producers, and actors expand their creativity. The closing weekend of the Hot Chocolate New Play Festival is on stage in the Ponce City Market Outdoor Walkway, Roll Call co-produced the festival with Somebody's Theater Collective co-founder Jennifer Boutel. She joins me now via Zoom along with Roll Call founder Stephen Beeler. Welcome to City Lights. Super excited to be here with you all. Thank you, Lois. It's such a pleasure to be here. Likewise. So first off, Stephen, let's talk about Roll Call. There are two divisions, Roll Call Theater and Roll Call Tech. Tell us about these two departments, please. So Roll Call started in 2018 as a technology platform that helps creative producers with their logistics. So we would help people cast talent for their commercials or their films or their plays. We'd help them crew up. We'd help them find locations or props. And we were doing that for about two years solely as 
this technology play, but we realize that we're helping everyone create their products, but there's still this problem of like distribution and exposure. So in summer of 2019, I started Atlanta Micro Theater and we would do pop-up theater actually in the basement of Telephone Factory Lofts. And it was kind of this like short format, progressive theater style. And we sold out every show that we did that summer. And I took that data and that information over to Jamestown and Pont City Market and was like, hey, you guys, like, I think there's something here. I think, you know, the Beltline and Old Fourth Ward and Inman Park and that whole area is, you know, kind of the heart of the, of the city, the heart of the creative community. And it would be awesome to have an independent theater um, mixed in with all the restaurants and shops. And so Jamestown was super excited about the idea. So we opened Roll Call Theater at Pont City Market in February of 2020 and, <laughs> and had an amazing four week run uh, before we and the world shut down. Aww. But what we were able to do was there was a little known amphitheater on property kind of right in the middle of the parking lot actually. So come around like July, August of 2020, Jamestown was really, really supportive. And we started using the amphitheater so we could do outdoor shows a lot more safely. And that really is what like allowed us to A, survive, and then B, let the performers in town, let the, let the Atlanta stand-ups, the Atlanta improvisers, the Atlanta playwrights and actors, and it still gave them a place to perform. And, and it was really awesome because so many had been dormant for months and months. And, you know, we were kind of getting to that point where, you know, all the virtual shows and the Zoom shows, like they were fun in like, you know, March and April, but then they started to kind of get a little exhausting. And, and so giving the performers a chance to safely get out live and in person in the outdoors at Pont City Market was really a great thing for us and I think a great thing for the community. And then from there, we've uh, just continued. You know, we're having to work twice as hard for half the results, but that everyone's doing it. That's the, I guess that's the new normal, but it's been super awesome. And then that year is also when Jennifer and I met and uh, started some of our first collaborations. And then 2022 were posed, I think Jen to do what, like three or four productions of yours and somebody's. So we're really excited to do a lot more with, with these teams. And Jen is one of Atlanta's most awesome creative theater producers and writers. Oh, Jennifer, you are the co-founder of Somebodies, two separate words, Theater Collective. And I should give a shout out to Stephen's Roll Call, which is spelled R-O-L-E, Call. But Jennifer, would you tell us more about some bodies, how it differs from other collectives? Sure. We, a lot of us, those that are have been involved from the beginning, have a varied background in theater and the performing arts, film. We have technicians, designers, who all, we've been in the professional world and educational world and community theaters. You know, we grew up telling stories by performing them. And yeah, when the, when the pandemic happened, uh, we, we found each other at Roll Call. And what Roll Call provided us was a place not only to, to do work, but they help us develop our work 
because the the core of us that are running this company together, this collective, we're able to bring things to the group that we can't just, you know, walk in the door of a, a union house and say, please do my play <laughs> now. It's ready. I need to hear it. And also there are many of us that have families that especially during the time of the pandemic, you know, we're, we're having to stay home and we're having to take care of small children because they can't go to school. And so we really bonded. We would have rehearsals with our kids running around and, you know, and, and that became our bubble during that time. And it just really, it brought us closer together in supporting what we love. And it also, it was such a catalyst for being passionate about this work that we were committed to doing it throughout all of this. Yeah, and, and we're still doing it. This festival, they're, they're all new plays and they're from um, members of our collective. And we're very passionate about our writing as well. This coming weekend, you will present They Know Not, which you wrote. Earlier in January, there was a play by Odilia Diego, Eleven Z. Yes, Eleven Z. Can you give us a brief overview? Oh, sure. Odelia wrote this play. It's an early draft, um, and she brought it to us uh, before the holidays last year. And we met and read it, and everybody was it, sobbing by the end of it. And we were so happy for her. It's a play about family trauma. There's two women, a mother and a daughter, that expose their family traumas, and heal together. It's also about women's health and poverty. It's a Chilean play, and it's just so beautiful. And my play, They Know Not, it's a a pretty intense play about a woman who uh, comes home to help her dying mother, and her and her sibling try to save her. And it's a comedy. They're trapped in a hotel room. It's a comedy. It's a comedy. It's absurd. It doesn't, it's a dark comedy. Okay. Stephen, I read that in February, Roll Call will launch a photo factory. What does that entail? Yeah. So one of the interesting aspects about being a theater at Pond City Market is, you know, there's traffic all day, all day long. You know, people are shopping from 10 in the morning on. And so we're trying to figure out how we can best optimize the space in non-traditional times. You know, no one, Tuesday at 11 a.m., people don't want to go see a Shakespeare play. So what we are concepting and exploring starting in February is this concept of the photo factory, where during the day you can come in and you can get professional headshots or creative portraits. Um, we'll have a number of backdrops and everything set up uh, with photographers on deck. So o- almost like you're going to, you know, the barber or the hair salon, but you're just going to pop in and have a, you know, an impromptu photo session. So um, the idea there is, you know, just to start to incorporate some of our photographers, another kind of creative division of the city, and kind of one idea that that I hope takes off is, you know, every couple of weeks, we're going to switch photographers. And the idea in my mind, the romanticized idea in my mind is that the photographer's work would almost become like playing cards where it's like, oh, like I got a headshot of myself from photographer A, 
but next week photographer B is coming and he or she has a completely different style. So I want to get photographed in that style as well. So yeah, that's kind of the idea in my mind and hopefully it takes off, but yeah, main, main idea is just to keep the space activated and um, provide a, a mainstream location for photographers in the city to have a, a little place to post up in, in the afternoons and get exposure there and get their work seen. Cause there's so many interesting styles. I mean, you know, we could photograph the same person. If, if 20 different fo- people photographed the same person, there'd be 20 distinct looks. And um, I think that could be a, a really interesting concept. So we're going to see, we're going to see what happens starting in February. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Loris Wrights, speaking with Roll Call Theater founder Stephen Beeler and Somebody's Theater Collective co-founder Jennifer Boutel. We are hearing about the Hot Chocolate New Play Festival. I was reading your background. You studied at Emory, and on the one hand, you loved filmmaking and storytelling, but this business part of your mind wanted to know, well, how do you get those stories before the public and, dare I say, monetize them? Is that, <laughs> is, is that, is that fair? Right, right. The ever-challenging concept of monetizing independent art, yeah. Well, so, yeah, kind of the the idea behind the structure of Roll Call is, is making performance art, normalizing that to the community. I think so many times, like if you look at traditional theater, the average person is maybe going to see a play once, maybe twice a year. It's it's expensive. It's time consuming. You kind of focus your entire day around, oh, I'm going to the theater today. I'm going to get a little bit dressed up. The whole day revolves around you seeing that show. It's totally worth it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, but like the approach that, I, that I'm trying to take with Roll Call is normalizing a higher frequency of attendance. You know, instead of going to the theater once or twice a year, start going to the theater once or twice a week right? Our frequency changes so much that I want you, as often as you go and you turn on Netflix, I want you to come to Roll Call because we've got such a diverse amount of programming. You can see short films on Monday. You can see stand-up on Tuesday. You can see improv and stand-up on Wednesday. You can see a play, a brand new play, a Shakespeare adaptation, and a sketch show on Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. So we've built this slate of programming that's very diverse, not only by discipline of the art, but also by our creatives and our writers and directors, so that you legitimately could come to Roll Call almost every day of the week and see something different from somebody different and kind of taking the idea of going to the theater off of this pedestal and being like, hey, no, I could go to theater every day if I wanted to. I could go to Roll Call. I can walk to this theater and get exposure to brand new stories and brand new creatives. And, you know, the goal down the road is to, is to definitely help people launch some careers. And I want to make, you know, some, 
recognizable Atlanta actors where if you know you're at Publix or you're at Kroger and they're shopping I want someone to run up to them and be like oh my god I saw you at Roll Call two weeks ago you were so good so so yeah really using the aspect of our business model where it's all about frequency and approachability and lowering prices on tickets so that you can increase that frequency and normalize and make theater more part of your life instead of just this special occasion. Oh it's a great idea. What I think you're doing, Stephen, you're also taking the preciousness out of developing and creating work, which for artists is, especially performing artists, is essential because it can be such an expensive, time-consuming art form. It's difficult to develop work in front of an audience and be so concerned about making a mistake, which is the death of creation, you know? Are you saying your productions are less polished or what would be a better way of spinning that have not undergone many rewrites and are there fewer rehearsals? I've watched all levels of creation in the performing arts happen at roll call and the space, which is why he's able Stephen is able to lend it over to photographers and, and events and things. He has all of the equipment, but it's modular. We can take it outside. We can put it anywhere and make the space. It can be whatever you want it to be in a lot of ways. And, and whatever the algorithm that Stephen has going with this plan that he has, and he has a lot of plans that we know of, and who knows what else is going on in that brain, <laughs> he lets us experiment. He lets us use the space to rehearse, to try things out. You know, plays are very difficult to develop without an audience. It's a cyclical form. And we've done full, very big productions with, you know, designs and costumes and lights and sound and technicians. And we have also done bare bones, just black box productions that just very raw productions that were both felt equally as powerful. Yeah. And I, and I think too, Jen, if I can piggyback off of what you're saying, it's when you share your work as a creative, it is one of the most vulnerable experiences that you have. Like if you've literally been writing a play, like Jen mentioned earlier for 11 years, it is unbelievably scary to have some stranger hear that for the first time because their critique on that play feels like a critique on who you are, right? So, so many times, there are so many incredible writers in the city. There's so many incredible writers everywhere, but 99% of stories are going to die on someone's hard drive. They literally will be heard by the writer and maybe their mom and like, that's it, you know? So, the idea that because we have a small house, because you know we don't have to fill 300 seats to break even, we can fill 25, 30 seats and we can still keep the lights on. So we're allowed as a theater to take more risks. And so we're allowed to give a chance to these incredibly talented people that in other locations, the risk is just too high because their overhead is too high. The theater's overhead is too high. But with us, we're structured in a way where we can stay nimble. And what's interesting is this business model was developed before we even know what COVID was. 
And fortunately, the business model is the perfect model for theater and performing arts in the COVID era. And so that was also kind of like a little bit of a like, oh, <laughs> you know, this, this whole model makes sense. It, it was designed, you know, before COVID, but it makes sense very well for COVID where audiences are smaller and our overhead is smaller. So we're able to take more risks. We're able to get more stories told. And, you know, if you look at all of the great playwrights, all of the great directors, all the great screenwriters, at some point, someone had to take a risk on them. And now they're household names. And we've got to get back to that idea where some, where we've got, there's got to be a place in a community for people to take risks. And what I love about Roll Call is we're an independent theater on every level, but being at Pont City Market, we're in the most mainstream commercial area. So we're able, and Jamestown is, and, and Pont City Market is able to put the independent arts not relegated to the fringes of Atlanta, but smack dab right in the middle of the most desirable place where everyone wants to be every day, every weekend. And they were able to plant that flag and be like, listen to the independent artists in this town, come and see our work. We are top notch and we've got incredible stories to tell stories that you want to hear. Don't run around and say, oh, I don't want another superhero movie, but then you just keep going and watching another superhero movie. If you want a unique story that you've never heard before, come go to your local theater and go hear a world premiere of a play and hear those stories and get exposure and meet new people and, you know, and help launch someone's career, you know? And you're speaking about the fact that it's in the middle of not just a shopping mall, but this multi-use structure, shops and, and restaurants and galleries. Are the merchants, are the other spaces that are occupied featuring signs for roll call? Is there cross-pollination with marketing, I guess I'm trying to ask, Stephen? Yeah, yeah, to an extent. It's been like, you know, everyone's kind of been in a little bit of survival mode for the past couple of years. But in terms of the community of store owners at Ponsonby Market, it's a really awesome community and we love to collaborate. So we've collaborated some um, with King of Pops uh, when we do outdoor shows We've collaborated a lot with a lot of the restaurants where they'll set up little carts and you can and, and you can buy stuff. They'll let us, you know, leave flyers at their counters. And then with your roll call tickets, you can go to a number of vendors and get a discount if you show your roll call tickets before or after a show and stuff like that. So yeah, the community at Ponsonby Market and all those store owners are, are very supportive. They love having a theater around, you know, and that's unique. In Metro Atlanta, there's no live work play development that has an indie theater housed in that development, um, which is super unique uh, and super awesome. And honestly, something that I think more development should look at adding because you know, you've got your restaurants, you've got your shops, you're supporting your entrepreneurs, but story and the arts are a significant, if not the most significant part of a culture and a city's culture. So, you know, whether you're a tourist or a local, being able to go to your favorite destination and get exposure to that city's storytellers, I think is a, is a huge positive for any destination. Yeah. Can you tell us about the Indie Film Showcase? How do you work with up-and-coming filmmakers? I read something about you wanted to take the independent out of independent film. Yes, yes. No, you know, so 
when we think of independent film, the word independent relates to independent financing is how that definition plays out, right? So my film was independently financed outside of the studio system. But when we call it independent film, film in general is the least independent thing of all all things. It's like, you cannot make a movie by yourself. It is a huge team. It is this living organism of everything has to be perfect or that scene doesn't work. Cause you could, the actors could be perfect. The camera could be perfect, but a picture could fall off the wall in the middle of a scene. So your art has to be perfect. Your lights. So it is really this amazing creative process that has to be in sync or it just doesn't work and you have to start over. So when we started the Indie Film Showcase and I started that with a good friend of mine and and a local director in town that we do a lot of films together, John O'Mitchell, it's this idea of like, there are so many independent filmmakers in town, but it's very hard to remember that they exist and that they're making something the same time that you're making something and you guys are struggling the same way they're struggling. And how can we join together and be in sync more so that we can enjoy each other's economies of scale? I remember we had one event and there was a filmmaker that was like, hey, I'm about to do this like 70s period piece short film. I'd love any support. And another filmmaker stood up and was like, oh my God, I'm trying to do a 70s period piece short film. And so by them meeting, they were able to pool some of their money together and share the props and share the picture cars. And so what would have cost them double the amount on a very limited budget, they were now able to pool together because they were shooting a project that was so similar, right? And so, yeah, so every Monday at eight o'clock at the theater, we host the Indie Film Showcase and we curate a number of um, short films with a combined runtime of anywhere from 60 to 70 minutes. And there's usually a talk back with the filmmakers that are in attendance afterwards. But it's kind of just like, yeah, hang out before, meet everyone, re-meet everyone if you haven't seen them in two years, which is very much the case. And then watch their films. Remember that like, wow, I'm surrounded by an immense amount of talent in this city. And, you know, when you think of film in Atlanta, you, you are thinking of the Marvel movies and the Met and the Netflix shows and all of these Hollywood productions that are being imported into Atlanta using the tax incentive and then piecing out, right? So it's a film that's made in Atlanta, but it's not made by Atlanta, right? And everything that we showcase at Roll Call are films made in Atlanta by Atlanta. And, and it's just a reminder of like, we know what we're doing. This is an amazing group of talented creatives making content on par with anything that would be coming out of New York or LA and just getting together every week and keeping the momentum and keeping the energy and keeping the connections fresh so that as a city and as a community, we can continue to generate content and start letting the world know that like, don't just come here to use your 30% off, uh, you know, coupon for the tax incentive and then leave, but like actually start investing in local creators and the same way that we're distributing and exhibiting theater productions at Roll Call from local playwrights, we're able to start exhibiting the local films that are, that are being made here too. And if anyone walked in off the street and didn't know anything about the Atlanta film scene and watched any one of those short films, they would be blown away. They're phenomenal subject matter with phenomenal production value. Roll Call Theater founder, Steven Beeler. And Somebody's Theater Collective co-founder, Jennifer Boutel. 
who is co-producing the Hot Chocolate New Play Festival. The last leg of the festival starts Thursday, January 27th, and runs through the 29th. The Hot Chocolate New Play Festival is located in the Ponce City Market Heated Outdoor Walkway. More information can be found on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, the next installment of our series, Speaking of the Arts, today featuring multidisciplinary artist Alan Peterson. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. It's time now for our segment, Speaking of the Arts, where we hear some of Atlanta's creative artists in their own words. My name is Alan Peterson, and I'm an Atlanta artist. These days, I am most likely to weld steel to make metal sculpture, but I use many different kinds of materials to make art. Metals, paint, beeswax and paper, even plexiglass that I design digitally and cut with lasers, and plenty of others. I use whatever materials make sense for the idea that I'm exploring in a batch of artwork. I got started in art as soon as I was old enough to hold on to a magic marker, like many of us did. But I realized I was blessed to have parents who were very supportive of my choice to make a career out of art. When I was in preschool, I won grand prize in a national art contest, which is odd as brags go, I know, but I also know it planted the seeds of possibility in our minds. In my grown-up art career, I made an important early step in my 20s when I was accepted to be an artist-in-residence at Sloss Furnaces National Historic Landmark in Birmingham, Alabama. I spent several years in their Sloss Metal Arts program, making my own cast iron art, exhibiting, and teaching metal art workshops to the public. Although I often use industrial materials to make my art, I'm very much inspired by the natural world and natural beauty. I take different angles on the basic questions of where we are in the world and how we navigate the situations that we find ourselves in. Those are basic questions to existence, but there are a lot of different ways to look at them and think of them, so each round of my art brings up new questions that feed the next round. I'm really interested in everything, but honeybees especially have inspired my work for many years. I'm interested in the sheer complexity of what bees can do. They're like bugs with superpowers. 
but especially I'm interested in the structure of the beehive and how our own human society is and is not like a beehive. Lately, I've been thinking about the beehive as a model for collective action. Honeybees live their lives working for the common good, so the beehive collectively is able to achieve things for their survival that no lone bee in the wild ever could. It would die without the hive. I moved to Atlanta in 2005 when Atlanta College of Art hired me as a sculpture professor. I love Atlanta. It's an exciting place, unique in the world, and I feel lucky to live here. A few years ago, I had the strange realization that Atlanta had become the city where I've spent more years of my life, passing every other city or town that I'd ever lived in. My favorite t-shirt is the one that says, Atlanta influences everything, which is funny, but it's only funny because it's true. I love to see new art in Atlanta. My favorite stop is Mint, the nonprofit that focuses on promoting emerging Atlanta artists. I'm excited by new gallery spaces like Cat Eye Creative and Take It Easy. And I can't wait to see what happens next at Adama, the online African Diaspora Art Museum of Atlanta. For a long time, I've loved to see shows at the Contemporary, Marsha Woods, White Space, Kylin Gallery, Mocha, Georgia, and art openings at Georgia State and Kennesaw State, where I teach part-time. Kennesaw's campus art museum, the Zuckerman Museum, is dedicated to contemporary art, which makes it a real resource for me including as a teacher of young artists and also as a contemporary artist and art viewer myself. If you want to see my work, you can find pieces of public art around Atlanta. The largest project that I've ever done is the Northwest Atlanta Globe. It's a sculpture and installation that includes the entire entryway plaza of the Northwest Atlanta Library at Scott's Crossing. I also painted an outdoor mural for my own neighborhood called the Kirkwood Beehive, which is on Rocky Ford Road at College Avenue. I have some sculptural works that are currently on the west side trail of the Atlanta Beltline, including a steel phoenix and a giant music box that you can walk up to and turn the crank to make it play a tune composed by the cello phenomenon called OK Cello, who also lives here in Atlanta. And I have an exhibition coming up in May at Day and Night Projects, which is another great experimental art space, and I'm really excited to be working with them. Multidisciplinary artist Alan Peterson. More information about Peterson's work is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Coming up... We'll listen back to our conversation with a rapper who quit his music career to start a cat rescue. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Becoming successful in the music industry is no easy feat, and rapper Sterling Davis knows this well. Davis spent years touring the country and nurturing his love of music. Then one day he gave it all up to become the Trap King. Trap, as in trap, neuter, return the most humane way to curb cat overpopulation. 
a lifelong feline lover. Davis has since become our city's best-known cat advocate, and he's on a mission to change stereotypes surrounding men in cat rescue and bridge the communication gap between black communities and predominantly white animal welfare organizations. Recently, City Light senior producer Kim Drobes talked to Sterling the Trap King Davis and learned how his path went from rapping to trapping. So I've been into music my whole life. A lot of my family members would rap or play instruments. My family, we grew up, you would have to play a sport or an instrument. So I <laughs> grew up playing basketball, football, and I would always get stuck with the violin. <laughs> no kidding. We, yeah, we moved around so much. And when you move around, the only instruments left is never the cool ones like the drums <laughs> or the keyboard or the saxophone. It's the violin. But even then, I didn't mind the violin as much. I always just love music. So it's a beautiful instrument. Yeah. And I wish that I felt about it back then the way I feel now, because now mm. I think it's cool. Back then, everybody on the football team was making fun of me for playing Mary Had a Little Lamb. So <laughs> <laughs> it didn't seem as cool back then. But now I wish I would have stuck with it more. But I've always loved music and loved entertaining. So I always wanted to do that. And I wanted to use music to shine a positive light, to make a positive difference in the world. How did you get started in actually having a career in music? friend of mine named Jaron Benton, he had signed a deal with a local label and he started to grow with that. And I started touring with him, meeting other people and just getting more involved as time went on. The story that I have heard, and please correct me if I'm wrong, is things were going pretty good with the music career. You were on tour and you were home for a break and just looking for a really low stress gig to kind of fill the time till you went back on tour. Right. So you learn being on tour, you learn really fast that in between tours, the breaks, you want to try to do something positive with your time. Because if not, you just spend money, get into trouble, waste time. It's counterproductive. So yeah, in between tours, I was finally starting to get to a point where I really wanted to be with music. I've always been a little different with the way I dress and my content was different <laughs> about what I, the things I would talk about. So it was a uphill battle for me. And I finally was getting to the point where I was seeing the results in music that I, I wanted to see. And I was getting ready to go on a tour with somebody I really look up to, a guy named Tech Nine. And it was gonna be a popular tour. And in between that tour and waiting for that next tour is when I took the break. I was looking for something to do. And I saw in Craigslist an ad for helping scoop cat litter. I did not know that that would change my life. <laughs> I did not know that that would not only change it immediately, but it kind of brought everything in my life together. It made things make sense almost. Yeah. Talk about a pivot. Right. Because it was before I never liked the politics of music or entertaining. I didn't, I didn't like that people would tell me, well, you paint your nails or you talk about stuff like this and that isn't really masculine or hip hop you know you should talk about this or or say it like this so when i got into this world of cat rescue i realized what i was was good people thought it was cool to paint my nails and 
my different outlook, the fact that I loved cats. People loved it. And it was really like an epiphany for me because I felt like everything that I had been doing with music and public speaking and, and being somewhat in the public eye, I was training to deliver this message about cats and rescue. So it really came together in an amazing way. Like it was when people say an epiphany, I really feel like that was it. You mentioned the hypermasculinity of rap music and not feeling like you completely fit into that mold. I think there's something to be said there as well for what people normally associate with people who love cats. It tends to be assumed that that is a more feminine trait. Do you come up against that? Oh, yeah. I mean, that's the biggest thing that I've dealt with. I deal with those stereotypes and things like race more than I deal with cats and rescue actually. I've I've gone to schools and I've had young men, young boys tell me that they thought all dogs were male and all cats were female. Oh and wow. They really believe that. And I've said this before and I I know I kind of raised a few eyebrows, but a lot of that with putting that gender that on an animal as far as a man should have a dog or a female should have a cat. And the way we treat cats in this country and the way we treat women in this country, I think it says a lot about why we're struggling with cats right now. And we're struggling for a lot of our women to be respected and looked at a certain way in this country. So I, I think it goes hand in hand. So I'm, I'm usually promoting cat rescue and I'm donating and I'm trying to get people educated on TNR, but I'm also trying to debunk that crazy cat lady stereotype. I'm trying to break stereotypes as far as toxic masculinity and what a man is supposed to do or what type of animal a certain person or gender should have. So I, I definitely run into that stuff a lot. As a Black man in cat rescue, I may be just about one of one in a lot of ways. So I'm, I'm constantly trying to debunk and, and break down a lot of stereotypes. So you mentioned TNR. For those who are unfamiliar, will you explain? So TNR is trap neuter return. It is the humane alternative for death or euthanasia for stray and feral cat populations. It's the process where cats are caught in humane traps. They're not hurt. They're taken to low-cost spay, neuter, vaccination clinics, and they're returned back to their colony. And so this prevents overpopulation and spreading disease. I dedicate my life to it because I, I see how important it is. And, I, and a lot of people don't know that our tax dollars are paying for a lot of these animals to be euthanized when we would be able to have programs where these cats are being humanely vaccinated, spayed, neutered, and taken back out to help control the rodent population and they're not hurting anybody. So can you walk someone through what a typical TNR trip is like? So, yeah. So it's it's crazy because none of, nothing about it is typical. You get different animals, different characters all the time. But usually I'll get a call or an email and someone will tell me if they're having a cat issue. It'll be an apartment complex or a neighborhood so the first thing I do is I try to go out to the apartment complex or to the housing authority, the HOA group, and demonstrate what TNR is and what I'm doing. I want to inform people first. You don't want to just go in a neighborhood, start setting traps and, sure. <laughs> and just <laughs> think it's going to be okay. It's, I Trust me, I learned the hard way with that. And you don't want to be the, the bald, tattooed black guy in somebody's yard at two o'clock in the morning. Like, no, I'm just here for the cats. And they're like, sure you are, honey, get the gun because this guy's crazy. 
I've learned the hard way to make sure that you educate first. You go to the communities, you talk to the HOAs, you talk to the apartment complex management, and you make sure that they understand exactly what you're doing. That way you can find the people that love the cats and the people that don't care for the cats much. And once you educate the community, then you can go through the process of explaining to the, the people that feed the cats to not feed the cats so that they respond to the food that's inside of my traps. Once you educate, I can go out, I'll catch the kitties. I usually drive out to Atlanta Humane Society where I'll spend a night in my RV so that I'm there first thing in the morning at 7.30 <laughs> to turn those cats in, get them spayed, neutered, and vaccinated. Uh, the males, I'll keep the males for 24 hours. I keep the females for 48 hours for them to heal. And then I return them back to that colony. And how can someone recognize a cat that's been treated versus a cat that's not spayed or neutered or vaccinated? I am so glad you asked that question because I shouldn't have left it out. You cannot forget the tip. The ear tip is a big deal. If you uh, follow me on Facebook or Instagram or anything, or you see the logo, uh, the Trap King logo there, one of the ears is tipped. And that is usually how you would know, how you would recognize that a cat has been through the TNR process. And it's real important. That ear tip is really important because it's dangerous for a cat to be caught and go through that process or someone attempt to go through that process as far as sedating the cat to fix her, him or her again. So right. um, the ear tip is really important to recognize that ear tip. Right on. And so you have still participated in a musical career. Can you talk a little bit about some of the music you've created that circles back to your TNR? Yeah, it's funny how it all came together and connected because originally I was totally against involving music in my cat rescue for, for a couple of reasons. For one, because the rap that I did was really edgy. It was uh, different. I didn't want to make a mockery of the music that I was making by making cat raps. I thought maybe it wouldn't be cool or maybe it wouldn't be fun. And then a buddy of mine who I talked to, Mosho, I am Mosho, he's a cat rapper and that's a friend of mine. And, and that's kind of his thing. I mean, I do rescue, but he does rap and I didn't want to step on his toes or sure. be disrespectful to what he's doing. I wanted to make sure that it was understood that he is the cat rapper. I'm the cat rescuer guy. At first I was, I was like, I'm not going to do the rap thing, but I saw that it, it helped with the mission. That's one of the things that I want to do is grab the attention of different demographics and men to let them know, because I was trained by women. Uh, when I'm out, doing cat rescue I'm usually only with women uh, it's it's usually middle-aged white women and I'm probably the only man or the only black person there so I saw that using rap and hip-hop and music was attracting different demographics mm -hmm. and that kind of changed my mind with doing music and it's fun so yes <laughs> the song about cats <laughs> let's go trap check it out Tomahawk when I'm coming through yeah. Drop traps, remote control Them nuts is gone, no reproduce Trap king, he got the juice Tails up, I'm flexing too Hot. Trap queens on my team Make no excuse, just execute right. That's right, we chasing tail Man, they can't wait the bell Them trap doors go up, they be out like they can't from hell 
and it's helped. It's helped with uh, visiting schools and dealing with uh, teenagers and, and younger children to just help them see it from a different light. You know, when they see the 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 cat lady feeding the colonies, I don't want people to say, "Oh, there's that crazy." cat lady they instead they gonna call her a trap queen and they gonna remember one of the rap songs and they're gonna go help her out they're gonna think she's cool versus you know uh she's just crazy and bringing more cats around here that's awesome so aside from educating kids how else are you spreading your word i travel the country a lot because i live in my rv i can travel around i've been traveling lately with a buddy of mine nathan the cat lady and raruva uh food company, cat food company work with, we've been going out, doing TNR, educating on TNR, and donating thousands of dollars worth of Aruva cat food to colony feeders and rescue groups. That has helped out a lot, as well as with my buddy Nathan. Last year, we started Tabby Dates. We launched Tabby Dates, which is a dating app for cat lovers. Ah, oh, finally. <laughs> now, I want to clarify this because when we first started it, we started it last year, August 8th, which is International Cat Day. But I want to clarify because when we started it, people thought that it was a breeding app that we were looking to connect cats oh, with no. other cats. <laughs> like, no, that is totally not what we're doing. We're to connect cat people with other cat people. And if, and we did it because, again, the compassion, fatigue, and burnout in cat rescue is something fun to do. It's a, it's a way to help cat rescues and cat people meet up, meet other. You don't have to just be in love. You can meet other people to rescue cats. You can help with adoption or fostering. But we started that. And again, that's something that's fun as well as educational. The main project and I've talked about this before main project that I want to do I have a dream of a fraternity sorority based on TNR and cat rescue do tell fraternities and sororities when people graduate college they're still connected to the fraternity or sorority meaning that they still volunteer and they still pay their dues so I want to take that concept and move it something over to like a fraternity and sorority for cat rescue. You think of like Sons of Anarchy meets TNR where you got patches on your jacket for how many lives you save. So if you got to 50 lives saved, you get this patch. And if you get to 500 lives saved, then you get this amazing patch on your jacket. I'm taking what people love about fraternities, sororities, and even gangs, because I, I want to use this to help Bring kids out of that. I, I've been in gangs growing up before, and I know what that's like to want to be a part of something and not have nothing positive around to be a part of. So I want to take that concept of fraternity and sorority and even gangs and do something like a club for TNR and cat rescue. Like I say, you imagine people stepping out and everybody got their jackets on and they traps and they about to go out here and trap. It's, it's just a cool and a fun approach to getting new and different demographics involved and making more people aware. I absolutely love it. A cool cat club. Yeah, yeah. I was thinking of words like clouder and everything. I don't know. So it's, it's so many things. I feel like the Boy Scouts and the Girl Scouts should have a TNR badge. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Everything they do is about community and outdoors. And that's exactly what TNR is for the most part. And I'm I've been working on that too. I really hope that we can get the Cub Scouts to add a TNR badge for all the troops. 
Well, Sterling, thank you so much for the work you've been doing, not only for the animals, but just to spread the word in different communities that none of us really have to fit into a certain box. You're quite an individual, and I love that you encourage that in others. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's an honor. <laughs> it's, it's, it's an honor and it feels amazing because at first everybody was just calling me crazy too. <laughs> well, crazy ain't so bad, man. Right, right, right. Atlanta's Trap King, Sterling Davis. You can learn more about his nonprofit Trap King Humane Cat Solutions on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., artist Amy Sherrill joins us to discuss her iconic painting of former First Lady Michelle Obama on view now at the High Museum. Plus, we'll hear about Aurora Theater's new production of Feeding Beatrice. If you missed part of today's show, you can catch up on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. There you'll find our complete archive of interviews, so you can listen to City Lights on your schedule. City Lights senior producer is Kim Troves. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes, and we want you to connect with City Lights on social media. Share your feedback with us on Facebook at WABE City Lights, or check out our pictures and videos on Instagram, where we are at City Lights underscore Lois Reitzes. And of course, I'd love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thank you for listening to W-A-B-E Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate. And thanks.